So uh, we're talking here during a major championship week, Bruce. Uh, I'm curious, what was your favorite major uh, to partake in when you were playing? Oh, dear. Um, I suppose when you think about it from a reward standpoint, um, you know, being born and raised in Australia, the, the Open Championship probably means most to the international players, probably, but uh, I mean, I always enjoyed Augusta. I I went there 19 times. I I enjoyed myself every time I went there. And, uh, and you know, it's just a it's just a class act. They know exactly what they're doing, and it uh, and it comes off perfect nearly every time. Yeah, it always feels like the uh, the Open Championship has a very clear identity. You know, being the oldest championship and all that history. Uh, was there a favorite in the 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 Rota courses for you? Um, well, I came closest to winning at Royal Birkdale uh, when Peter Thompson won, uh, and then fortunately for me, I won a World Golf Championship at Royal Birkdale. So I, uh, I suppose from a winning standpoint, uh, that would be the golf course. However, uh, the very first time I went to uh, Scotland and played the old course in the uh, inaugural Eisenhower Cup matches. That's always remained uh, something that I've enjoyed going back to over the years. Uh, it's it's quite different to most golf courses that you'll play, the old courses, but it sure is fun. It's a pretty easy golf course when there's no wind, and it's extremely difficult when there is wind. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the uh, and you've built some golf courses in St. Andrews as well. I did. I built a golf course there at the uh, uh, just on the South Shore. It, it was a thrill for me to to even be able to build one in St. Andrews. Yeah, oh, I'm sure to have the, to have a, a neighbor that famous. That's uh, probably comes with challenges. I'm sure, but what an honor. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Actually, when we opened the golf course, I had my. Uh, I had my two boys and my grandson and wives. We all went over there and we played. Uh, we played. Uh, oh, what's the one down the road? Uh, one talk about Kings Barnes, yeah, and then Carnoustie, and then um, then play, then opened my golf course there. So it was a it was a fun week. So we'll we'll uh, get back to some of your design work and cor- cor- golf course architecture. We have a lot of fans of that in our community, and, and I'm sure um, they'll, they'll be interested to hear kind of your thoughts on on that. But uh, I wanted to start with a little bit of your your playing career. You know, for those that that may not know you, um, you know, you're uh, you've been referred as a generational talent and one of the greatest golfers of all time. You know, 40 worldwide wins. Uh, you won eight times on the PGA Tour, and uh, do do you know who you're tied with for PGA Tour wins? Oh, no, no, you know they don't count two of my wins, and my two World Championship wins are not counted by the PGA Tour, which is a little strange. But uh, anyhow, doesn't matter. Well, that's a that's a bunch of BS. All right, we're bumping you to ten. I'm, I don't. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I was just I was looking at the list, and I, I thought it would put some context for those of, that are you know from younger generations may not um, be familiar with you. But um, you know, you got the same amount of tour wins as KJ Choi, uh, Fox commentator Brad Faxon, uh, huh. two-time major winner Lee Jansen, and uh, and two of your fellow Aussies are, are at eight on PGA Tour wins: Jeff Ogilvie and David Graham. Maybe my favorite is uh, Chichi Rodriguez. You guys both have eight eight wins. Yeah, well, Chichi, of course, was uh, I spent a lot of time with him on the tour. He's about my age, so uh, he was quite a character. Yeah. <laughs> Any good stories about him? Uh, no, just you know his his antics with his uh, swashbuckling sword uh impersonation with putter was always pretty funny a lot of people loved him for that well the people you're in front of is is a pretty good list too so for our our, our younger listeners our millennials uh you got more wins than ricky fowler uh bryson dechambeau uh hideki matsuyama padraig harrington and uh and one major championship slayer brooks kepka 
So, you know, you're still in front of uh, uh, all those lists of young guns. I think that'll catch up with me, though. You you mentioned some pretty pretty strong players. <laughs> they, well, they got time on their side, I suppose. But Absolutely. Still, still I, I think it uh, does not take away from the point that, um, you know, when uh, when I was first introduced to, to you and your family and my, my grandfather told me stories uh, about you being a, a huge fan of, of golf in general, but uh, knowing what a gentleman you were, um, you know, he, he referred to you as a, a generational talent, just one of the best in the game that maybe didn't get as much recognition as uh, the, the big three. But at that time, you know, he, he would tell me that you, you had maybe the best golf swing uh of any professional golfer. Um, I, I was curious, do you, what, what did you regard as your greatest strength uh, when it came to your golf game? I think, uh, I think fortunately I had both ends of the game uh, fairly good. And that was, you know, keeping the ball in play off the tee. And, uh, you know, in my day I was relatively long. Uh, to, today, uh, my length today would be a, what the women hit it. But um, and then the back end, of course, the putting. So I felt like my driving and putting were the best part of the game. And I was, even though I say it myself, I was a very good bunker player. So I was never afraid on the par five if I missed the green. So long as I hit it in the bunker and not in the rough, I felt pretty good. Did you did you always swing the club uh, the the similar way? I know you you didn't take it. Um you know, almost more of a, a John Rahm for a modern golfer. It didn't look like you had a elongated backswing. Did you do no, you swing it that I, way? Yeah, well, yeah, and and there's a history to that too. When I when I was growing up as a kid, uh, I played field hockey, and anybody that's ever played field hockey understands that you can't take the stick above your shoulder. So all of my hand-eye coordination was was in a, what would be an abbreviated golf swing, but I don't. I don't think I ever got the parallel on the way back, and that that seemed to translate well to the golf course. Yeah, I. You know, I was a. I could keep the ball in play pretty well. I. You know, not a lot of really wild shots. Uh, some some days it was good, and some days it it wasn't as good. But um, generally speaking, I, I felt like I could keep the ball in play pretty well. So you, you, you mentioned. Uh, your, your your childhood then I mean uh, I think you, you won the Australian Amateur and Australian Open before age 23 so sounded like pretty early on they knew you're gonna be you're gonna be something special uh, t- tell us a little bit about your your upbringing in the game um, you know how did Bruce Devlin become involved in the game of golf sure I well um as I mentioned before, I was a field hockey player. I played just a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, football, but not much. And then, uh, when I was 15 years old, my father was in a horrible automobile accident, lost his right arm, and he was a 20 handicap golfer. And after he uh, got back from the hospital and had some rehab, he said he wanted to play golf again, and he was looking for somebody to play golf with him and he designated me as that person so I, that was the first time I'd ever played golf uh, I was 15 years old and which I suppose in today's standard is a rather a late start but you know I had good hand-eye coordination because of, of my uh, soccer skills uh, my uh, hockey skills so uh, you know it wasn't a big transition and, and I sort of I guess I caught on to the game fairly quickly yeah, so fifteen. Your first swing was fifteen, and your first right. uh, uh, win was it that? Well, the big one being Australian amateur, I'm sure. But when did you you know you were going to get uh, competitive golf uh, a serious uh, effort? To be quite honest with you, Matt, I had no intentions. I had uh, after I after my dad lost his arm, he was in the plumbing business and. I decided that I was going to go to technical college and learn the plumbing business, which I did, uh, and then became a master plumber and was in business with my dad. You know, we were we were doing plumbing in high-rise buildings in Canberra, and uh, we had a crew of probably 30, 35 
people. And then uh, I came home from work one day and my wife was sitting at the uh, lunch table with Norman von Neider, who was the guy that helped me a lot uh, in my younger days as an amateur. And between the two of them, for about an hour, they beat on me to say, well, he convinced me by saying, look, I, you know, I don't know what you're making working for your dad. You're probably making, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month. He said, I'll, I, if you turn pro, I'll guarantee you $50,000 and, and uh, I'll keep your prize money, <laughs> which I didn't do, obviously, but, but that was his <laughs> way of convincing me to get into professional golf. Uh, I had, uh, as you mentioned, I had won the Open. Uh, so in 1961, I got an invitation to the Masters, uh, but I had no money, so I had to turn it down. I think I may be the only golfer that ever turned down an invitation to the Masters, but Clifford Roberts was nice enough to uh, send me another invitation in 1962. So that was uh, that was my first uh, trip to Augusta. In 62, when when you turned down that invite, which I got to imagine people are thinking, how does one turn down an invite to the Masters? But you just didn't have the, the capital. You didn't have the money to get there, right? No, I didn't have the money to get there. You know, straight a long way away from you know, uh, FAs and living expenses and hotel and that I just I just couldn't make it work so um, yeah, fortunately I got to go back the next year though that was good the um, how many professional golfers do you think also hold the distinction of a master plumber oh dear I wouldn't think very many <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't know I don't know another one um, uh, well, I'll tell you one of the interesting things which um, people might get a kick out of. Yeah, I had mentioned that my dad had lost his arm. And uh, during during my career on the PGA Tour, uh, every week there was a pro-am. I got to play with uh, leg amputees and arm amputees and guys that, you know, that were, that had physical problems. And... That was one of the great experiences for me. Um, I always got paired with the guys with one leg or one arm, and, and uh, I tell you, they're a, they're an interesting lot. And I, of course, got my uh, great interest in it because of my dad. But you know, they don't, they don't want any help. Uh, they feel like they're capable of doing anything. Yeah, talk talk about. Uh adversity or, or you know having a bad hair day think about the, the, what those folks have have already overcome and dealt with and, and your dad is, is that that sounds like you got into plumbing as the family business was it due to the injury was it to help out uh the old man because of, of uh his loss uh yeah i you know i wanted to uh i, I sort of had planned on on getting into the plumbing business but uh uh, well, after Dad lost his arm, uh, I, I didn't last much longer in school. I wasn't, I, I mean, I was a pretty good student, but I, I, I just, I felt like I wanted to go to work with my dad. So I went home one morning from school and sort of mid-morning and walked in. My mother said, boy, you're in trouble. If you, if you left school, you're in trouble when your father gets home. And when he got home, he said to me, uh, what? what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, I decided I quit school and go to work. He said, well, go get your overalls on. So that's how it all, that's how I got into the plumbing business. Obviously, I went through wow. an apprenticeship. But uh, it, was, it was an interesting time in my life. And in your father, what, what do you remember most about him? Uh, he, was a, he was a great, uh, he was a very, very generous man. Um, he helped a lot of people, uh, and I think uh, as far as uh, my career was concerned, he he did everything possible to um, to make you know to make me a success in the, in the game. Even though I don't think he was really, I don't think he was really thinking that I would turn pro, but he gave me every opportunity to uh, to learn the game from the right people. 
Yeah, and there's been a, a theme, and, and I was, you know, asking some folks that uh, we mutually know who play in your um, your miniature event, the Devlin down at Secession, and you know, uh-huh. uh, two words came up. Two words came up when you know folks think of you, and uh, the 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 one that stuck with me from one of the individuals I asked, they said, you know, the Devlins are so caring and connecting uh, that they care about, they genuinely care about people and they're so willing to connect um, people together. And I think in the game of golf, it's, it's, uh, you know, the game of golf is special in that way, but uh, your, your family is one of the great golfing families. You know, I I know that um, your children have picked up the game, played professionally and uh, worked in the industry and, um, you've built courses all around the world, but I, I was curious, you know, for all of our, our new parents <laughs> that, that are listening, what, what do you think, why is your family, uh, so predisposition to, um, to be so caring first, to be so cordial with strangers? Um, I, I think it, it really is what makes your golf tournament so special. And, and obviously the Devlin foundation, which I w- want to share with the, you know, our audience, but what, what, what has that, uh, been what? What are the keys to the success of of, of your family and and how you guys um, have have been so good to so many people? Well, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate in my life to have uh, grown up where I did and have a have a family like I had. And then, to be quite honest with you, when when uh, when my wife and I and the kids came over to America, we were treated with such class by everybody. Uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard not for that sort of, you know, it's hard for that stuff not to have a lasting impression on you. And, uh, we felt like we were welcome no matter where we went. And, um, it, it was, a, uh, you know, it was sort of indelibly put in our mind about, you know, thank you for the, for the folks that do some stuff like that. And, cause I've always had a love for the, for junior golf and, and as you mentioned, that, that's exactly what our foundation's all about. We try to uh, we we try to help uh, junior golf throughout, uh, primarily, I guess, through the uh, first tee organisations and the uh, AJGA. And we do one other thing that's a little outside of the junior golf aspect, and that is uh, an educational foundation at, at Secession Golf Club uh, in the name of two of our members that were killed in 9-11. So we make a contribution to them every year as well. Yeah, and, and uh, we've been very proud to uh, partake in that the last two years and uh, be be a part of it. You know, what I what I love about your event, Bruce, and as a uh, still a competitive mini-amateur who likes to get out there every once in a while and, and see see where the game is at uh, under some pressure. I, I, there's, there's a lot of amateur events to choose from. What, what I've been so impressed with the Devlin is um, phenomenal golfers. You know, it's, it's a great field, uh, very competitive, but really good people. And, and I think people um, are rallying around uh, your foundation work, uh, the, the causes that it goes towards, but also just uh, your spirit of the game. And, and I kind of wanted to hear a little bit on, you know, do you think golf serves a purpose? Do you think, uh, if, you, if you do, what do you think that is? Well, there's no question in my mind that it's, it's, um, it's an avenue to get to know people like you can't in any other situation. Uh, if you play around the golf with somebody that you've never met, you know a lot about him by the end of that round of golf. Does he, you know, does he move the ball in the rough? You know, uh, you have those intimate conversations with the guy. Now, I found that the most interesting thing playing in all the pro-ams. You you got got guys there that you've never met. You you know, they come from all over the country. And uh, I think golf is is great for learning about people. And to be quite honest with you, of all the sports in the world, I consider golf to be the one that that uh, produces more classy people than any other sport. Why do you, why do you think that is? Well, you know, you, uh, every, everything you do in golf, you know, you're self-controlled, really. I mean, you've got a set of rules, but, uh, you know, some people break the rules, which is not very really good, but 
uh, you know, if you're in a bunker and you lose the golf ball, you don't hit it, you call a penalty on yourself and proceed. And, uh, you know, we don't have any replay cameras. Uh, occasionally we have somebody that's in the audience watching TV that, that you know, takes an issue about somebody that's kneeling on the towel under a tree. But uh, generally speaking, it's, you know, you sit, it's all self-controlled and, and it's up to the individual. I want to go back to your uh, your playing days on tour, and you know, traveling the world, playing the professional golf circuit. Uh, who are some of your favorite names to play with, or who are some of your favorite players uh, that you got paired up with? Still on the Australian Eisenhower Cup team, I got an invitation from Jack to go to uh, St. Louis and stay with the Nicholas family for five or six days before he and I drove to St. Louis to play in the U.S. Amateur. And, uh, uh, you know, stand, standing on the practice tee and listening to Jack Grout give Jack Nicholas lessons was, uh, you know, something that not too many people have had the opportunity to, to do. It, it, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I suppose from a playing in a golf tournament standpoint, um, uh, it's interesting. I won three golf tournaments playing with Lee Trevino the last day. And I, I think the reason for it is that uh, he did all the talking and I had, I could sort of get away by myself and, and play golf and not <laughs> not have to worry about it. But he, he, was, all, he was always great fun to play with. <laughs> so you, you were one of the, the few with the mental fortitude to withstand his, his verbal... Uh... I, mean, I, th- I heard he used to get in guys' heads a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm sure he did, but uh, I don't know. We've always had a, a very, very solid relationship with Lee Trevino and myself. And, and to be quite honest with you, uh, I I think he is uh, I think he's the second greatest striker and controller of the golf ball that I've ever seen. And, and the first one is Hogan. Uh, I know everybody will say, well, Bruce, how can you leave Nicholas out? Well, I don't leave him out. He's he's, he's a mental giant and, and, a, and a very good player. There's no doubt about that. He's got a record that nobody can beat. But from a height and distance control standpoint, I think Hogan was one and, and Trevino was number two. I, I heard a story of you and Trevino. I was wondering if you'd share it with us from the British Open. Oh, Yes, I'll, yeah, I'll share it with you. M- most of the people won't believe it, though. I'm sure, but we were. Uh, I'm sure they won't, but we we can still share. But <laughs> uh, when we were playing in the open, in uh, I think it was '73 at Lytham, and uh, both both Lee and myself were playing terrible. We had an early early Sunday draw, and uh, I walked on the practice team, started to hit balls next to him, and started complaining to him about that I'd lost my driving ability. I was driving the ball the worst I'd ever driven it in my life. And he said, well, hit one with with my driver. And I said, Lee, come on. I said, you know, you stand four inches further away from the ball. You swing flat. You're five foot eight and I'm six two. How could I possibly use your driver? And he said, just hit it, would you? So I teed up his driver and I hit a frozen rope right down, right where I aimed it, and I thought, ooh, boy, that was interesting. And I hit another one, and then I hit a third one, and he said to me, well, he said, I've got a solution for you. We'll use the same driver all day today. And I said, well, how can we do that? We're going to have an RNA official with us. And he said, well, whoever's got the T, whoever's got the honor, and we're using a driver, Take that driver, and while the RNA guy's looking at the flight of the golf ball, back up, and we'll switch switch clubs. And we did. We did that for the whole 18 holes. And many, many years later, uh, I guess about seven or eight years ago, Trevino was with. Uh, he was at the RNA, and he was sitting with the secretary. And I, his name, his name eludes me right now. Uh, I should remember it. He just he just he retired about two years ago, 
And they were sitting at the dinner table, and Trevino said to him, so, um, and I forget his name, he said, uh, Mr. Secretary, do you think that Bruce Devlin and I should give back the prize money we won 40 years ago? And the secretary looked and said, what are you talking about, Lee? He said, well, you know, he and I both used the same driver uh, the last round of the Open. And the secretary looked at him and said, yeah, sure you did. You know, don't give me all that garbage, Lee. And just dismissed him like, there's no way that could have happened. But it did. <laughs> Oh, I, I, that story blows my mind. And, I, and I'm sure it's be, because it's Lee Trevino that people probably didn't take it seriously. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, you know, he, <laughs> he, he tried to convince the secretary that, that we had done that and, and he wouldn't, we wouldn't have anything to do with it. He would not believe it. Ah, the, the, that is one of my favorites. And, the, the world needs more Bruce Devlin's and Lee Trevino's. That is that is too good. Um, you, you said something interesting when you mentioned Jack Nicklaus, um, and I don't know if it was habit or if you believe it, but I wanted to ask you, you, know, you said Nicklaus has a record that won't be beat. Uh, do you believe that? Do you think Tiger's going to um, fall short of, of Jack's number? I do, yeah. I think he'll fall short. I, be, to be honest with you, you know, I really, I really do not think that Tiger would win another major. Uh, you know, I could be wrong again, but that probably won't endear me to a lot of friends either. But, uh, you, you know, you ask my opinion, so. Now, that's what we want, is your, your opinion. That's, uh, I, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, it's going to be challenging. The game has gotten so competitive, and um, I, I wanted to, see your if you're if you're seeing any observations uh around pro golf today you know how has it evolved since your time and do you think it's uh for the better or for the worse the direction that the pro game is headed uh, i think you could you know you could make an argument for both sides of that issue uh, as far as the, as far as professional golf is concerned i think it's in a good place today uh, there are a lot of very very good young players you know, you mentioned a couple of them, you know, Ricky and, uh, you know, DeChambeau and Tiger and Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy. You know, I mean, they all uh, they all seem to know what it's all about. Uh, I, I think they were probably better in some ways than, than a lot of my compatriots were relative to access by the press. Uh, I think they've done a very, very good job you know, making golf what it is today. From a playing standpoint, uh, obviously, uh, I know nothing about the game they play today. Uh, when, you know, for me, uh, I always tell a story about length, and we used to play at the, uh, uh, the Disney tournament uh, in Orlando, and I remember the 10th hole, there used to be a par five, and if I could... If I could drive the ball and get to where I could carry the bunker to 35, then I'd take a shot at it with a three-wood. Uh, today, <laughs> well, I don't have to tell you, to, you know, a three-wood today with these kids, they hit it, you know, they'll carry it, 280. So that, that's how much the game's changed. Uh, do I think it's for the better? Uh, probably. Probably. Uh, however, I would like to see. I'd like to see the ball, uh, you know, reduced in length because the problem with it is, from an architectural standpoint, think of all of the old great golf courses. Uh, take Marion, for instance, would be a great example. These guys don't hit drivers at Marion anymore. They may hit a driver two or three times in the round. The rest of the time, it's you know controlling the ball because they got such length. Yeah, you certainly are one of the few people to have that really unique perspective of playing golf at the very highest level, being a, a world-class golfer, um, and also building golf courses, uh, many of which have hosted, I think your courses, I looked up last night, have hosted every major tour, has gone to a, a Bruce Devlin design. Um, <laughs> did, did you, when you were designing any of those clubs did you know that they would be hosting professional events did that ever work into your 
uh, your layout or or how you wanted to go about the course? No, not not really. I've I've always uh, I've always tried to move as little dirt as I possibly could uh, and use the natural terrain of the property that I was given to build a golf course. Obviously, you have to, you know, you've got to build lakes for drainage and all the rest of that stuff. But but I I, I tried to make it as less contrived as possible. Uh, and my own, my only real consideration from the championship standpoint was to try to get try to get my uh, back tees uh, at a an obscure angle to where the membership plays from. In other words, you know, a, a straight hole for the members might end up being a dog leg, a little dog leg left or a little dog leg right for the championship player, make him curve the ball one way or the other. That's basically what my philosophy was. Interesting. So a, a member's tee would have more of a, a straight-on um, shot at yeah. the... Interesting. Yeah, one of the... Honestly, Bruce, one of the coolest moments I've had on a golf course was uh, at the tournament this past year, the Devlin. We're on the back porch discussing cor- golf course architecture and... Uh, we were talking about the 16th tee at Secession, which for those that haven't played it, it's a uh, dog leg right short, or shorter by today's standards, starter, shorter par five. And, uh, and and you were talking about some improvements. And instead of describing it, you took a group of us, probably nine or ten of us, out to that tee to uh, hear your considerations and what you're looking at. And um, now that you say what you just said, what, what you said that day makes a lot of sense, but... Uh, I'm curious when you when you look at something like that, uh, what we can use that as the example. You know, wh- why is that additional T that you were describing, which is a little longer and at a, a, a more uh, more of an angle to the to the fairway? Uh, wh- why are th- those changes needed now? And, and what what uh, what do you look at as you start to design those changes? Well, obviously, uh, you mentioned correctly. It's a short. It's a very short par five, uh, particularly in today's standards. Uh, I think I think the back tee plays right at 500 yards. So you know, a lot of par fours are 500 yards now. But uh, it had a it had a rather sharp dog leg to the right, uh, and then a green that has a extremely deep bunker on the right hand side of the green and the marsh on the left. And guys were driving it down the 18th fairway, and uh, the only way I could stop them from doing that and play the hole the way it's supposed to play is uh, I'm I'm going to take the tee back about 13 yards is all. Uh, there's some bushes on the right that need to come out, and I'll use the material that we gather from cutting the tee in the back and make mounds on the right-hand side, and I'm going to plant trees there. So that will uh, eliminate the going down the 18th fairway. Yeah, yeah. Do people creating their own hole and try to get them back to the the course of yeah. uh, what's there in front of them? I've uh, only played maybe three uh, of your 150 or so golf courses across the world, but um, I was I was curious if you think there's a, a characteristic uh, of a Bruce Devlin course or maybe a theme or a feature that uh, that, that you'd see uh, when you arrive at a, at a at a Bruce design. I hope not. I hope there's no reoccurring situations. Um, I've tried not to, like I said earlier, I've tried to use the land more than uh, contrive a situation. So um, while, yeah, I I just don't know anything that I've tried to do on every golf course. So hopefully nobody else sees that. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, what one feature at Secession that I I find so neat is um, the the mounding on the perimeter of some holes. Um, it, for those that have visited, and apologies for those that haven't, but uh, number one, uh, you know, you're hitting nearly perpendicular to a, a rather large fairway. It doesn't look large, but I think at its right. max, it might be seventy, eighty yards. Um, but that mounding is interesting to me because uh, it, it makes the fairway a bit wider because it can be right. used as an embankment. However, 
it, yeah, back backstop. But however, if you do use it, um, the ball doesn't typically come all the way back down off of it. So you have an uneven lie. Uh, similar yeah. to you know some of the the lies you might get at St Andrews or uh, and and I when I play sheepish around that uh, track I find myself having a lot of those little mounded shots where I'm hitting into the fat part of the fairway with uh, into those mounds and and my approaches is, are never you know I'm putting from 40 feet all day so I I was curious how how intentional the, that mounding is there and and how that came to be because it's very unique or for me it, it seems unique. Yeah, if you if you if you really analyze the uh, the golf course, this, this, uh, the mounding, like you mentioned at one, is is to you know give people a little bit more room. Uh, they run it up the mound; it, it won't go into the marsh. Uh, the the large mounds uh, between the twelfth and thirteenth hole there to block the driveway or the road that you can see if you were standing on the fairway and you look to your right you'd see cars running along the street and I didn't want that so those mounds are strictly for well two things separation between uh, 12 and 13 and and primarily to not see cars driving along the road when you're about to hit your second shot uh, and the mounds at the mounds at 11 are uh, pretty much pretty much for the same reason there's a there's a bunker there that normally you aim at and you can't get it in, and those mounds separate 11 and 12. It, it, so in, in um, the United States, at least, I feel like I have always heard of secession the most. Um, it, it's maybe uh, you know, your most popular, let's say, or famous uh, course here. It was, uh, that might be fair to say. What do you think is your, your best design? Is secession it, or are there some others that you would put up there as contenders? Oh boy! Uh, I I suppose I'd have to say uh, I'd have to say secession. Um, it's and I I think part of that matters because of what's evolved at secession. Um, you know, we decided to we'd always had a golf tournament uh, that we used to run. Actually, this year was our. 41st year of the Devlin, except the first uh, 33 of them were in Houston, Texas, and it used to be called the Devlin Trophy. And then it got it got to a point where we weren't actually running it. I just loaned my name to it, and it got to a point where we just didn't feel like it was doing what it was meant to do. So we moved it to secession, and. Uh, I think it's been a good move. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree with you there. Uh, anyone, we've had Mike Harmon on the podcast. Uh, that was maybe he might have set a record, Bruce. You won't be surprised. I think it was two and a half hours. Um, the man can tell a story, and he's not afraid to. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> but uh, but if anyone needs to know, you know what secession is all about, I, I recommend they go listen to that podcast um, because yeah. Mike really embodies. Um, the the celebration of the game of golf and uh, the the purity of it and a lot of the traditions that people may not understand you know Mike puts it in really good context of uh, why they're important and, and one of those is is walking uh, the tradition of walking a golf course and walking it with a caddy which uh, is is one thing I truly enjoy in the game and um, now I appreciate so much more than I did when I was younger. Uh, and secession yeah. is the perfect place for that. So you you designed, and that's what me and my my partner for the event we always say, hey, we we got a great walk today. You know, regardless yeah, of what we shoot, we get to go well, around this course, place. Yeah, they you, you know the ultimate because uh, you know uh, relative to golf, secession is you know it's, it's only 30, 30 years old basically. So um, it's it's a situation where. You know, we've always felt like, you know, we'll, what will secession, secession be regarded, you know, 70 years after its inception? Will it will it still hold the desire of the golfer to walk and play golf with a caddy? And I think it will. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think with people, it, it comes down to people. And, you know, with your yourself and your family supporting it, pe people like Mike Harmon, 
I think it's <laughs> that place is is good for a long time. Both Mike Harmon and myself are uh, pushing the years along, uh, but I, the the one thing that I I think has has been a contributing factor to secession is that it's always been run by uh, I call them benevolent dictators uh, since secession's uh, inception. There have only been five that are now called presidents of the club. There are no there are no boards that make decisions. Uh, there's an advisory board that the president can call on to make a decision if he chooses. But basically, he's got the authority to run the facility the way he wants to. And from from an architectural standpoint, that, you know that makes my job. A lot easier. If I, you know, like if, like 16 this year when I took those guys out there, you know, I'd already had Mike Gonzalez and the superintendent out there, and I was doing my sales job to you know to make those changes. And you know, two minutes after you make make your pitch, you get an answer. <laughs> so it it uh, it certainly is a, a I think it's a it's a great way to uh, to run a club. Yeah, I, I I don't have the experience you do, Bruce, but I, I feel like uh, those. But that's a good way to put it. Benevolent dictators. Um, it, it is important for there to be accountability for a golf club, and uh, and I think a lot of a lot of country clubs in America have really struggled from uh, death by committee. One quick story. I have a friend of mine uh, who uh, lives in Dallas, and he and two other people along with a member at secession. We're down there uh, in, I guess it was late January, early February, and they were doing things on the golf course that were not right. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were over the road at the little green and tees that we have out there. They were practicing, and uh, they decided to uh, relieve themselves. Uh, and it just so happened that the President's house is, has, has access to the view to that green. And so he went over and he pulled the member aside and said, Look, you know, this is not right. Uh, this is your warning. And apparently the next day, um, he was at the club and saw a similar thing on the 15th green. And he walked over and said to the member, you're suspended for 12 months. And he looked at my friend and said, and you're not welcome back ever. So. <laughs> That's uh, not messing around. <laughs> and, no. and I love that you admit to being friends with the gentleman too, Bruce. That is, you know, we, we all have well, those friends. And I find it very interesting too, because I, I haven't, I decided I wasn't going to call him about it. Uh, I thought he'd just call me and, give me his side of the story but he has never called me so I'm not sure I'm not sure now that that friendship is going to last much longer <laughs> <laughs> uh, well that's yeah places that's important those those respect to the game as we call it and reverence for the game and those things you know shouldn't happen particularly on a putting green or near it <laughs> I agree uh, uh, so th this has been great Bruce I don't want to take up too much of your your morning um, the, uh, I thought we'd maybe end with a couple, uh, memories for you, uh, test you here, here a bit. Um, okay. what do you remember? What do you remember most about the 1967 masters? Uh, the 67 masters was, um, the eighth hole. I was playing with Doug Sanders and I hit my drive at the eighth hole of over the bunker on the right hand side of the fairway in a perfect lie and hit a 20 yard hook with a forward that ran up the green and went in the hole for two. That would be my 67 memory of Augusta. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that would be an easy one. Um, yeah. you're, you're, I think you're what one of uh, three people to have double eagles at uh, four. It's, four. it's funny, it's all, all par fives. Uh, at Augusta have been uh, double eagled. Uh, Sarazen, wow, in 35 at uh, 15. 
Jeff Maggot, uh, 97 at 13, and uh, Louis Eustazen at 2 in, I want to say 2012, something like that. There's been four double eagles, and uh, they've been all on different holes. Remarkable, really, when you think about it. Today's Such players at, at 13 and 15 hitting irons in there, you know. I mean, Sarazen hold the wood, and I hold the wood. And, uh, I don't know what Maggot did, but I know Ustazen hit like a three iron into the hole at two. I mean, yep. there was never a time we could get there with a three iron. Uh, on a different note, what do you remember about the 1975 San Diego Open at Torrey Pines South? Oh, yeah. I remember that very well. <laughs> I was uh, I was playing along. Uh, and it didn't look like much was going to happen Sunday, and uh, I believe at that time I think Tom Watson was leading going into the last round, and I came to the last hole uh, nine under under for the day, and now I'm starting to think, you know, if I can make a three here, you know, that might do it. I mean, to think that you might have a chance to shoot that sort of score at Torrey Pines was sort of unbelievable. Anyhow, I hit it. I hit my second shot again with a four wood, and it, and it was the first time they'd ever put the lake in front of the green at uh, Torrey Pines. And I really did hit a gorgeous second shot right at the flag. Uh, I came down and hit on dirt, and I thought, well, so I got a you know, 15, 18-footer because that flag... You know, normally is short the last day. And then as I started to walk, I saw the ball start to trickle back down that went in the water. So I thought I could play it out, and seven swings later, I finally got it out and hold it from about 30 to 10. <laughs> and you play, so you said you tried to swing it out of uh, the hazard? Oh, yeah, I got in the hazard, and, and I and I'd hit it, and the ball had got the bank back down a foot to the right of me, and I did that six times before I finally got it out on the seventh attempt and, and then hold it to ten. One of my, so that's part of the team cup. That's what I was going to ask, is that I actually heard that that yeah. might have been the the inspiration for that scene in Tin Cup. Yeah, that's right. I've heard that too, but I, I don't know if that's correct or not, but uh, it was... <laughs> It was a little uh, strange, to say the least. Well, I'm, I'm sure you did it more eloquently than uh, Kevin Costner, uh, but uh, that, that's one story. I mean, I, I know it probably hurts to relive, so thanks for sharing it with us. But we, all, all us other, other golfers, Bruce, we can really relate to moments like that in the 67 <laughs> Masters. <laughs> well, well, it's now called uh, Devlin's Billabong. <laughs> uh, that's what that's what they call it. Yeah, that's what they call. It. They got a plaque in the middle of that. They take the plaque out, obviously, when the tournament's being played. But uh, there's a there's a metal plate in the middle of the lake that says Devlin's Billabong. <laughs> Next time I'm there, I I will uh, take a picture and send it to you. Okay, buddy. Um, <laughs> so with your you know eight forty worldwide victories or more than forty. Um, Eight to ten PGA Tour victories. What what was your your most special win, or or maybe even just most special moment through all your uh, professional golf days? Well, when I look back, I suppose probably the most significant one would be the when I won the uh, Australian Open as an amateur. Uh, Peter Thompson and Kel Nagel and some of our other great professionals we had in Australia. And then, uh, you know, I hate to take it away from any of the other tournaments that I won, but uh, I have, I had a, fortunately for me, I had a very special relationship with Ben Hogan. Um, the very first practice round that I played at Augusta, after turning down the invitation the year before, was with Mr. Hogan. Uh, my coach, Norman Von Neider, was over with me. And he asked Mr. Hogan, would he play a practice round with uh, his young friend from Australia? And 
that that started a relationship that I hold very, very dearly to my heart. And we played just about every practice round from 62 until he retired in 69. Uh, if we were at the same tournament and we were in in time to play a practice round, then we always played a practice round together. It was a it was quite a uh, quite an experience. He was a very very special man, and uh, I was very fortunate to have been able to spend those seven years uh, being around him. What did, what did you learn most from Mr. Hogan over those years? Well, the one thing that stuck in my mind more than anything else was, um, I, I guess, his wife, Valerie, and my wife, Gloria, and I, and he, we, we traveled together to the 66 Open in San Francisco. And we played uh, played uh, two, two practice rounds together, and I guess it was towards the end of the second practice round, and I said to him, uh, and... and I'd gotten to a point where I didn't call him Mr. Hogan all the time. I said to him, Ben, how many uh, how many days a year do you take you know take off? And he looked at me like I handed him a snake. He said, days off? Are you kidding? He said the only three days I've had off from hitting a golf ball was when I got snowed in in Oklahoma. He said, if you stop hitting golf balls for a day. It takes you two days to get back where you were. That's that was a pretty remarkable statement for him to make, but um, I'm sure he believed it. You know? Yeah, uh, he, he was passionate about the fact that even if you just went out and hit 30 or 40 wedges, you know, the memory and the continual feeling of the golf club was important to him, and and that, I guess that's why he was such a great player. Wow. Yeah, and that's uh, his hands would definitely second that point uh, from the pictures I've seen. He hit a lot of golf balls. Yeah, he sure did. Well, Bruce, uh, you, my friend, are a great player, uh, but more importantly, um, you're, you're a great person for our game. And this this has honestly been uh, maybe one of the the uh, milestones for me personally. And this podcast, I started to kind of celebrate the the better aspects of the game. And, and you embody a lot of them. So thank you for joining the bag drop. Thank you for uh, being with us today and um, looking forward to supporting the Devlin, supporting the Devlin Foundation and, and seeing you again next year. Well, thank you, man. I, it was a pleasure uh, talking with you today. And uh, if you would be kind enough, send me a, an email where I can actually listen to the podcast. If I don't see you before... I'll see you at the end of May for the 2020 deadline.